Uh, we are so pumped that you would be here this morning. We got a special thing today. We decided to cut our Pirate Radio series uh, a little bit short because an opportunity came up to bring in somebody uh, in this community that we think is an excellent and legendary voice in the area of one of the things that, that we've been kind of processing as a board, especially in, in light of the recent events of how do we be uh, a better voice for the voiceless? How do we uh, be a better resource? How do we be um, a church who really lives out this, uh, this pirate radio thing that we've been talking about. Uh, and one of those big areas is rec- uh, racial reconciliation. And so a name came, was uh, produced for us or, or came up in conversation at a board level uh, about a guy named Jordan who is just... Uh, has got one of those voices and is uh, highly connected in the community. In fact, this week, we didn't even know this, um, and he can vouch for this, when we approached him a couple weeks ago, would you come and speak? Um, this week was just uh, announced on some sort of, I don't even, he, he can talk about the logistics of it, but uh, Inslee's uh, big statewide uh, program towards uh, dealing with some of the racial injustice issues in Washington State. And so we've got a mini celebrity on our hands. I don't, Not even mini celebrity, a big celebrity on our hands this morning, everybody. We're super pumped to have him here. So um, in a minute, I'm going to bring him up here, but what I would love for you to do is we've, we've structured today a little bit differently than what we've been doing, um, and, and so um, below this uh, screen that you're watching right now, and only if you're watching this live, if you're watching this on replay, you can submit whatever you want, but we're not going to read it, um, but for those of you who are watching live, we might read it, but we're not going to incorporate it. Um, there's going to be a comment section or a chat box beneath. We are going to be hosting a live Q&A with one of our East Laker friends, Anna, um, after this for about 10 minutes. So um, if you've got something that comes up that you would love to be addressed or talked about, probably as a product of some of the things that he's going to enlighten us with, um, then submit those things below, and then we will do our very best to do, get as many of them as possible involved in the Q&A at the end of the thing. So um, make sure to log in under the chat box, get those in, and stick around after the talk for a, a short and brief Q&A with Jordan Cheney. But ladies and gentlemen, Jordan. Good morning, Eastlake. How are you? And that's to you guys right here. <laughs> so you guys are going to be just talking live on behalf of the online audience. Um, I'm really grateful and happy to be here today for a lot of reasons. First of all, this is where we brought TJ Martin uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, we did an event called An Evening with T.J. Martin, and he's <clears throat> an Academy Award-winning, Golden Globe-winning documentary filmmaker, uh, first African-American to win an Academy Award for a feature-length documentary, so he's a historical figure. Um, he came and showed his movie, L.A. 92, which just so happens to be about the L.A. riots when Rodney King was uh, beaten by the uh, LAPD. So, it's kismet. <laughs> you know, this is fate to be here talking about this once again. Um, with everything that's going on in this country, uh, black people, especially if you're a limited uh, in your community with other black people, a lot of black people are feeling like a fire extinguisher um, if, if you're able to grieve and find the words to help other put out, others put out their fires. You know? And I feel that for me personally, I, I've been kind of always trying to fight these fires. You know, if you're black and you're aware of what we say is woke, you're always putting out these fires. Um, You've, you evolve a special perception and an awareness, not because you want to be superhuman, it's because you want to survive. And it requires you to be aware, be incredibly socially aware, and be able to perceive the psychological side effects of what we call racism or white supremacy. And, and it's, such a, it's such a challenging topic to unpack because when we think of racism, 
we often associate it with skinheads and burning crosses and lynchings and this, this horrific truth of American history, right? And it is that, it is that, but, the, but we all collectively will denounce and condemn those actions, right? Um, because that's conscious hate. And we go, racism equals conscious hate. That's bad. And it's, everybody can easily uh, vote on that. But what the racism that we struggle with, the racism that is way more deadly than the burning uh, crosses and the hills kind of racism, is that it operates unconsciously. The, the racism that's the most dangerous is unconscious hate because it is carried by everybody who falls into the power group. And, they, and it, it plays on you almost like a possession, <clears throat> it takes all the goodness and all the value that you have as a person and confuses you from this issue of oppression and makes you think that it's a their problem and not an our problem. So where all the, the suffering is coming from, the screaming, the, the rage that's in some of the protests and some of the uh, black people who are suffering in this country comes from only one thing. It's injustice. And somehow in the conversation around race and uh, justice, people think that the word justice is synonymous with uh, revenge or something, or getting a handout or being treated. <laughs> they confuse the idea of justice for black people and black death as something being something we should be grateful to get or longing to get someday when it's something that is demanded by all the laws of nature. And I believe God as well. There, justice is not just a, um, um, a fairy tale idea or a slogan to make a country sound and look great. Justice is a spirit that will unmask itself in our lives, and it should. And if we're not um, doing our best in our own actions to invoke it, whether it's through uh, voting or uh, standing up for our neighbors, <clears throat> then I think that's when the consequences become uncertain and scary. So with all that being said, I've created a conversation called How to Talk About Racism, a crash course for helping people disar disarm this bomb that we all carry into our social lives. Because we, if you only have one or two black friends in your circle, <clears throat> I know that it's incredibly hard for them because they don't wanna lose one more friend or person they care about um, over this conversation. So often we tuck it away under our tongues and behind our hearts because we care that dang much about you. You know, we, we actually do. But it, it, it is gaslighting, it's a gaslighting effect to not be validated in what you are feeling. The active ingredient inside of gaslighting um, is invalidation. Um, when they say that, when Martin Luther King said, um, a riot is the language of the unheard, well then the obvious solution is to listen. To listen, what, what is, what is, where's this riot coming from? What's, what's going on in the hearts of your fellow human beings that are black and the most marginalized and oppressed and are suffering and being eliminated systematically, right? So how do we unveil this spirit of racism and how do we unmask uh, the spirit of justice in each side of one of us? Well, I'm a poet and I do believe that healing begins with communication, no matter how raw or crude. Um, it's become almost too easy to speak freely nowadays that I know that I, I understand my own intent in this. You know, and when we talk about um, being woke, we first talk about the eyes, right? Not these eyes, but uh, intention and impact, right? When you, have, when, you're, when you open up the conversation, understanding that there is both intention and impact, you have some containers, right? This makes space for grace and compassion. Because when it comes to talking about racism with your black friends or black relatives or community or coworkers, what have you, 
we're talking about a wound that has not been permitted to heal. And it's not um, a metaphorical wound. It's a deep psychological wound, a historical one. When you are black, you have this experience from the day you're born till the day you perish, right? Um, And white people don't experience this, so it's hard to see it. So I find an intersection. Whenever I talk about racism, um, I open up with this question, especially to people who may not have the skills around it. I break down the definition, right? And I'll ask you this question. Can anybody in this audience answer the question as to why it's impossible for Barack Obama to be considered a racist person on American soil? And I'll open this up to this audience or even online if they wanted to. And, and here's where you have grace and compassion. Um, we have room to F up in this space. And by F, I mean forgive, okay? Because this is a messy subject and lives do literally get lost and we do lose friends over misunderstandings and confusion. And God is not the author of confusion. So how is it impossible for Barack Obama to be considered a racist on American soil? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Um, no, but that's a good answer. Good answer. You were correct on that, <laughs> on that part. <laughs> yeah. Um, anybody else want to take a stab? And, and there are no, um, there are dumb questions, and, but they're welcome here because I'd rather take these questions in a, in a, a, you know, a safe space, right, where you can workshop them, work them out, see where you messed up and correct yourself and step forward, right? So... Any, anybody give up? If somebody wants to try again, I'll give you a free book. I brought three books today. So yeah, look at that, incentives. I'm going to be a kindergarten teacher one day. <laughs> On racism. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and um, I did this talk at WSU Tri-Cities one year on a, in a workshop uh, that I put together called How to Use Your Power and Privilege to uh, Affect Change in Your Community or on Your Campus. And a student did sh- uh, shot up and she said, it has to do with power. It's impossible for Barack Obama to be considered racist because when it comes down to racism, racism is race plus power equals racism. And how you can understand this, and I'll illustrate this example. Um, Sex plus gender, right, equals sexism, right? So it's impossible for um, a woman to be considered a sexist, right? Because she's not a part of the power group and the power dynamic. Men were automatically sexist because it is a way to describe our power. Now, whether we are sexist pigs, uh, all has to do with whether we are uh, demand- dismantling our toxic masculinity and confronting the, the um, systems of, of patriarchy and toxic masculinity that have made women unsafe, right? That's the difference. With racism, because Barack Obama is not a part of the power group, he can't be considered a racist. Now, Here's where people get confused and go, no, I know black people that are racist. I know that. And I was like, you know, what you're trying to describe is prejudice. There's a difference, a distinct difference between prejudice and racist. Can Barack Obama be prejudiced towards white people? Of course. We can be prejudiced against everybody for their weight, their size, their height, their skin color, um, what music they listen to. We can hold prejudices. But prejudice holds no power. Black prejudice will not keep you from health care, will not get you gentrified will not get you uh, lynched, will not steal your justice. Black prejudice will not kill your kids, like George Zimmerman did ours with Tray- Trayvon Martin. Trayvon and all black people did not get justice. 
We carry that wound. We carry that coffin. I, I wear a black hoodie. Anytime I'm in a black hoodie, it's my constant protest for Trayvon Martin because that's what kicked off my activism. It is a constant mourning. I recently um, had to break down this idea of sexism uh, to to people to further illustrate racism, right, and create a funnel effect. And I said, you know, I've been working with kids in Juvie for 11 years now, and, uh, you know, they, they feel like mine after a while. And I send them off, and they go away, and sometimes it's even hard to write them back because I, sometimes I want to believe it's true. And a lot of the young men that I work with, um, they fear going to prison because often they do. A lot of them get 10 to 20-year sentences for their crimes, and it's, it's horrible to witness this. But what do you think the one fear that they have is when they have to go to prison. What's the one fear? And that all of us men have when we think of jail or prison. What do you think that fear is? If you ever had to go to prison? Love one, leave us. Love one, leave us? How about your own personal safety? Yeah, absolutely. These young boys and even all of us men, when we think of going to prison, that's the first thing we think of, like, geez, I hope when they say the uh, proverbial bubba doesn't come meet us, right? And it's... It has been made to sound like a funny joke, but the truth is it's real, and it really happens. But because men, and we're sexist, the only place we have the privilege to fear this is if we commit a heinous crime and end up in a deep, dark dungeon and have to get power, overpowered by several men to be sexually assaulted. Where does, this, where does this fear arise for women? Going on the wrong date? Leaving the gym? A relative? You know, this is what power and privilege affords Men, we don't have to fear that I could walk around any street at night um, other than the sundown stuff that's happening, but I don't fear sexual assault. I don't fear human trafficking. Um, therefore, since I'm in the power group, I'm in a position to help change the systems, right, that will protect women. This is undeniable. This is just, it is what it is. It is what it is before us, and we have to interact and deal with this. So I say this to a, a room full of racist people with the intent being the understanding of the definition of racism versus prejudice. It is not that I'm accusing you of being uh, consciously hateful towards me. No way. You just gave me money. You're one of my best friends in Leadership Tri-Cities. I know this community. So I know that my intent when I say, you guys are racist because I'm a sexist, because we're talking about power and systems. But this is how vital and important communication is and definitions are right now, because we are in a communications war. We are in a messaging war. And, and, and unless you tune out some of the garbage and really look for what's being said inside of a person's heart and what their intent and impact are, um, we're all at a loss, right? <clears throat> when we have the intent to harm somebody, um, hopefully it only comes from the place of really wanting to protect the greater good, right? When we're in a conversation with somebody and we accidentally mess up and have a microaggression against them and we can empathetically see their face and how we affected them, we must be aware that our impact had that effect and immediately take responsibility for it. It's a lot simpler than we think. Now, the number one way not to talk about race is online with your comment sections and all that, and not because you can't um, have a well-rounded argument back and forth and links and all this, but the one thing that's missing in these conversations is human eye contact, empathy, and presence. The actual soul is removed from the conversation. And if this is a, a spiritual, this because I, I feel it like it, I feel that this is some kind of spiritual war. I look at it like that. And spiritual wars are fought with spirit, empathy, with love, with compassion and grace, but with truth. We 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 can't afford to mince our words 
but we can't afford to not have room for grace and compassion in some capacity. We have to build bridges of understanding to the most marginalized group and just understand, like, I don't know what it's like to be this person. I don't know what it's like to be a black transgender kid in the Tri-Cities. I don't know what it's like to be a Muslim woman in the Tri-Cities. How can I get into empathy with them? Compassion means to suffer with somebody, to truly suffer with them. Us men, we can't understand what it's like to be a woman giving birth in the, um, in the birthing room. All we can do is hold hands and breathe with them or get out. You know what I mean? Especially if the epidural hasn't kicked in, right? If you ever get a kid. That's what's happening. Within justice, there's black people do not have an epidural. We are screaming. We are breathing. We are trying to give birth to a new self, a freer self. We... We're not downtrodden and despondent as the media might paint us. Are we enraged? Yeah. Who wouldn't be? If your child got killed on camera and you weren't enraged, you should be hospitalized. You should be criminalized. This is a, this is a war over our hearts and our spirits, and we're being asked to do something about it. Each and every single one of us has a personal responsibility in this matter and a social responsibility. A personal responsibility, we have to educate ourselves. We have to become better and clear in our communication and not fall into the traps of confusion that are, have been set by other forces because they are being set like that. This is, there's energy working against us. We have a history of 400 years of practice at this game called racism that we've, that we've been complicit in. There's been black people who have been blindly complicit in it, but they can't be considered totally complicit because they're actually a victim of this thing. When we look at people like Candace Owens and Kanye West and Stacey Dash, who have this really great platform and articulation of why, why all the rest of us black people are hurting are so invalid. We call people like Candace Owens um, um, a weapon of white supremacy. She accelerates. She accelerates and greases the wills of this machine that's eating us up daily. Even while we're in this pause and there's this uprising of people and protesting and a slate of hands of resources that's taking place. It's really great. But we know this. As black community, we have seen this before. We have been enraged before. And right now, everybody's in a state of motivation. Motivation, it gets you started. Yeah, motivation gets you started. But discipline will get you there, to that, that mountaintop, right, where there actually is a real place of equity, real truth, real justice, real equality, the, the enduring spiritual qualities, um, that are the pillars of society and community. If we abandon these ideas, what are we really holding on to and paying taxes in to? Systems that continually um, hurt and oppress? How can we be complicit in that and sleep well at night? You know, um, this, isn't to, this isn't even about feeling guilty. You should feel disciplined in this. Acquire a practice of unpacking these conversations with your family and friends, you know, with people who, when you're alone at a Thanksgiving dinner or in a co-working space and somebody says something that you know is totally unacceptable, um, do you tuck into yourself or do you stand up? Do you, are you afraid of your, you, you might go too far, right? Or do you walk away saying, I, I said too little and I could have said more? Those moments are what we describe as the dishonorable moments, you know, the a coward dies a thousand deaths. And this isn't to paint you as a cowardice because this is hard and it does take courage. It does take courage because I've lost father figures in this. I've lost two or three friends just in the last week 
over simple misunderstandings. I'm trying my hardest to communicate. I mean, I'll, I'll write poetry for hours to communicate a message of love and equality, and, but bring up the truth of it. And still, whew, so the losses stack up. And I, I, I finally understand where that whole forgive them, Father, for they know what, not what they do comes from. I mean, it takes a while to really get there. But when you actually step back and you look at the whole picture and you look at how, how blatantly evil they might look to you, I know that their lived experiences and education and conditioning and this 400-year system that has been uh, assisting them along this way to arrive at their untruth um, has crippled them. And, and, and I, I keep my distance, like my mom always said, to you know, feed certain people with a long-handled spoon. So I keep my distance, right? But in, the, in that distance, I, have, I kept my door unlocked because I see people turn around. I see people come back. You know, I see people learn something, you know, and, and gain the insight. And then they become powerful allies and start wielding their power in the way of good. And, and that's the side of this, this narrative, this uh, spiritual war that we want to be on. It's not to just choose right, but it's to know you're on the right path. It's to know that your existence and everything, when you get up, breathe, eat, and all that, all that you are as a, as a human being is assisting other human beings in a very just and equitable and loving way. And you're facing the hard fights, the truths, you know, sticking up for your truth and your principles and your faith, knowing that you're on the right side. I think assistance shows up. I think in the, in the, in the power that swells with that kind of love, you can actually convert people without having to argue and fight them and block them. Um, it's, it's not an easy road and it shouldn't be easy because it wasn't easy to get here. It took a lot of blood. You know, it took a lot of pain and loss. And here we are still accruing more and waiting for justice to arrive. And now it is in our hands as people. How do we make our communities more just? So like Brent was mentioning at the opening, <clears throat> you know, me and 23 other people are a part of this statewide task force for uh, policing and racial justice. It's exciting only because it's like, wow, I have a seat at the table, but I also feel the tremendous weight and responsibility of all the oppressed voices that I'm connected to from black transgender kids to marginalized kids uh, in the incarceration system. And I start thinking about systems. And I start thinking about, well, how can we change them? What does that look like? I know that what Martin Luther King talked about, he said something to the effect that he can't change the hearts of men. I believe that. Is, he can't change the hearts of men. You can appeal to them, but you can't change them. Um, but we can change laws that shape the behaviors that lead to so many other of us, men and women and children, getting killed or oppressed. Um, the Seattle Times asked me to write an article about what I hope to see come out of this task force. And I have hundreds of elders and people around the state who have been doing this work for years, who are reaching out to me. Um, nobody's casting shade on my being picked, but they all are wanting to protect me um, to make sure that I'm not just played in some other, you know, um, softening game, you know, a game that softens the narrative and calms everything, everybody down, right? What I um, automatically want to come from this task force, and I'll share this openly, is justice. Now, the term gets used so much, I think we, we, we lose sight of the word or the understanding and the weight of what it actually means. So here in our local community, um, Gordon Whitaker, an old childhood friend of mine, was killed by the Kennewick Police Department. And 
It's very questionable as to what wouldn't happen up to the moments leading up to his death. The investigation is still ongoing. This happened in January. I met with the mother of his children over the last weekend, and she's coming over today because I'm writing part of the story on her behalf. What I hope to have come from this task force is for everything from the time Gordon was born to the time he passed away to the time he was killed, right, um, to be fair and just, nothing that Gordon ever did in his whole entire life, nothing. And I, I've known him. I know his record. I know everything about the guy um, pretty much up to the last thoughts he had. You know, I knew, I knew what he was going through in life. But none of it, none of it um, was punishable by death. Nothing that he did was punishable by death. Therefore, he died unjustly, regardless of what the, the investigation might uh, say, regardless of, of they say he pulled a gun or whatever the case may be. Um, we see every day white people get taken in with compassion, grace, and understanding. And every system from the time Gordon was, uh, was born to the time he was killed um, deserves and is worthy of examination, investigation, analysis, and correction. Whatever it takes to create all of our resources should weigh heavily in the direction of the preservation of human life and, and having a, just and, uh, a system that operates justly, or we are living lies. We are living lies. This man named Jiddu Krishnamurta said that um, it is no measure of health to be profoundly, oh no, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly ill society. And I love being able to go and have brunch with a friend or go hiking and do, do things that, you know, um, privilege or wealth might be able to bring me. Um, but I know that immediately when I'm in the juvie, and when I see Gordon Whitaker's children's mother um, and black trans kids who I know suffer, I can only enjoy my privileges so much. And it's not that I feel guilty for them. It's just that I think like what my mom taught me as a kid is that, you know, if you have a sandwich and somebody's hungry, you give them half at least. You know, and if they're hungry, you give them an extra bite. She always taught us to share. You know, she taught us to be sharing people. and We grew up poor. I mean, we grew up dirt poor, government cheese and a bucket for a toilet, Oxnard, you know. And I think those conditions soften your heart, but also harden your, harden your drive, right? To, to really, to stay committed to, to change and to, and to hang on for, and to have hope, you know. And what teaches you to hang on for hope is, well, for me recently, having police officers and judges um, flip over their cards and get in agreement with Black Lives Matter. That level of validation, given the historic tension between officers and the black community, is relieving and refreshing, but it's not something I can rest on my laurels on. None of us can. We, we, it is definitely welcome because that's the direction we want to go into. <clears throat> but we know that this is, this is a long fight, and we can't afford to we can't afford to let our guard down because we are too vulnerable. Have any of you seen Chasing Coral on uh, Netflix? It's like one of the last things I watched on Netflix. It's been a while. And then Tiger King, I watched one episode of that, and I was like, ah, I don't know if I go with the Tiger King. Um, Chasing Coral um, is basically a snuff film for the Great Barrier Reef. You, it documents how the climate change raising, a, I think, a temp, one degree in temperature, um, it killed the Great Barrier Reef. It's the largest organism 
what was the largest organism, uh, living organism known to man and women on this planet for, since the planet had begun, and it's, it died a few years ago. Right before it died, all of its corals and reefs turned bleach white and lilac and all these pastel-looking colors that looked really beautiful. And these are what they called the death rows. Right before the Great, Great Barrier Reef took its last breaths, it turned bleach white, lilac, and pastel and was screaming out for help. It was screaming to be saved. It wanted the world to be able to see that something was not right. This water's too hot. I can't breathe. And then it perished. And it's extinct. I don't know if we even know how to grow another Great Barrier Reef. It might be considered a myth one day. Just like black people. We are creative because it is a part of our death rows. Um, the consciousness and a lot of us who have been doing this for a long time seeming, seem to be operating almost on a singular consciousness. We're aware of the same things. We're aware of the same problems. We have different tactics and methods and ways we articulate it, but we, we feel the same thing. And this is a, um, we're, we're doing this to survive, not to be melodramatic. Um, my mom worries about me every day. My brothers worry about me every day, you know? Survival for all of us means that we're all going to have to take part in addressing this collective wound of racism. If, if white people um, collectively used all their resources and power for good and began taking on some of this quote-unquote bitterness that we have, right, and get in empathy and suffering with us, let Trayvon be your child. Feel it like us, you know? Um, I have a lot of nonprofits who are asking me, how do we get involved? How do we, how do we, well, access. When you talk about diversity and inclusion, also bring up erasure. Look at your boards, look at your coffee shops, look at the communities and say, why isn't this black person here? Why isn't this Mexican person here? Why isn't uh, LGBTQ represented in this circle? Where are my Muslim friends at? We have to create spaces that, make, that, that welcome these communities in. We have to speak in languages and um, a language of the spirit that is genuine, welcoming, and understanding and acknowledge and validate people's suffering, not getting to the yeah, but debate with people. That's a doorway to invalidation. A lot of us close those conversations down immediately. There's no yeah, buts here. There are no moral middle grounds on lynchings. They, we should, the reason why this is swelling and, and capsizing our, our little boats that we have is because it's gone on far too long. It, it's just gone on far too long. And, and despite the narrative of I'm tired of this, I'm exhausted. Not I, <laughs> I got a lot of energy for this, you know, I, and a creative energy. Um, I'm not just at the protest wanting to make changes. I'm, I have secret little art dojos and studios that are popping up um, in the community that we've just been sprinkling behind the scenes for impoverished kids. I'm, I do it on a dime. <laughs> I think my mom taught me that, you know. I think my mom taught me how to stretch creativity. I think of, um, you know, Academy of Children's Theater, and they're reaching out on how they can get more inclusivity with their, um, with their organization to black kids and kids of color. And I thought, you guys remember Riverview Baptist Church when they had the bus come and pick it? That would be great for the arts community here. Access. We gotta create access. Um, a lot of times a single black mom doesn't have um, a car or the money to sign up for a class. Even if it's $25, you know how much 
food 25 bucks can feed, you know, in a family of two or three, you know, so access is an incredibly important way to change systems. When you say, well, why isn't this person here? Well, think of all the things that you had that helped you get there consistently, possibly for years. Um, and, and then create resources that will create channels for that. You know, little, little ideas like that are how we're going to change this. A lot of people think when we talk about dismantling systemic oppression and racism, that we got to get in the time machine, go back to the day the Declaration of Independence was being written, and, okay, we ripped it up. Now we can solve racism. We dismantled it. It's a 400-year-old system. And now it's, the evidence is just operating in real time all around us. If you have kids getting, um, let's say, black kids at your school who are the ones getting expelled, suspended, in detention all the time, everything that's leading to that moment, yeah, the kid has to take personal responsibility for, but then there's the social responsibility of the school. Is this kid being targeted and profiled? Is he being racially bullied? Kids in this school, I constantly get moms reaching out to me. My kid's being called nigger at Hanford. He's suicidal now and depressed. Gaslighting is psychological abuse. Saying nigger to somebody is psychological abuse. Self-harm ensues. Self-hate ensues. They're reinforcing a deadly narrative that's been played out through this whole entire history. Racism psychologically abuses you before it kills you and takes your life and tempts you to do it to yourself along the way. Um, we can do something about that. Collectively, we can change these systems. We can change the behaviors and teach kids differently. Some people think racism is going to die out when the old racist white people die out. That's what you always hear that. Well, we can just have a funeral for racism. Well, a lot of these old white people who are people who are waiting to die out have children who they've taught these values and ideas to through example, through their own blindness in the matter. Um, and this isn't about ostracizing. It's about getting in communication and challenging ideas that are unhealthy, that lead to another community's self-harm or total erasure. The Trices used to have so many more black people here. We don't even see each other anymore. The east side of Pasco, we had so much family and friends. I mean, it used to look like Atlanta over there 20 years ago. The mass incarceration came, gentrification came. Then just the discomfort of not seeing your own reflected everywhere you go. I challenge any of you to go spend a month or two in Atlanta. You're going to have culture shock. You're going to be fearful. You're going to have to challenge ideas that you've heard about being around a lot of black people. You're going to have to overcome your anxieties of being a loner culturally. Um, and then when you start to feel safe, you'll be able to connect with that community. You'll be able to prosper in that community. But not until then, right? You'll constantly watch yourself. You won't speak in certain ways. You'll you'll always be in a state of hypervigilance. That's what it's like being black in the Tri-Cities. And now so with the emergence of um, these militias um, and their, their messaging, um, trying, to, trying to ride with the police department and the, com the very complicated and dangerous messages that sends to our vulnerable communities, these things have to be addressed. What's happening in Walla Walla with the back, the blue, and the um, officer who had two S's, which is confused with the sniper school for Marines and then also Nazis. Um, it's worth the tax dollars to have a PR person or the chief of that department make a public statement to clear up the confusion or to condemn that symbolism and the messaging and intent of it. But that leadership we're not seeing. We're not seeing that. And it's... Um, 
it's confusing to see people rise into such high <clears throat> positions of power and then lack the moral courage to do or say what's right. And, it, and it's rampant in the Tri-Cities. There's city council people who don't speak up. They're silent. We're watching neighbors in Spokane and Aberdeen and other places do it, and we're wondering, where are our leaders at? And when you start to just find that city council people and chiefs and now these other people are just people like you, operating on their own moral judgment and, and ideas about what should rule over us, it's an obligation for us to challenge it, to call it out as everyday people. You don't have to be a superhero or anything special. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And do what's right and come what may. You know, and, and that's, that has really been what has been driving me in all of this. And I don't know if I'm, I'm like my mom. I t- I'll talk. I'll just keep on going. And I got through maybe four of my 30 talking points. Um, I wanted to jump in. And when we do this again, um, I have areas that I want to get into about microaggressions, you know, um, and what those mean. But in short, microaggressions are those subtle moments where, where the conditioning and practicing and messaging of racism slips out through the tongue in common conversations. You know, um, a friend of mine, no, it was actually a news reporter. We did a Badger Club talk. And she was, it was a total compliment. This is intent and impact. She said, oh my gosh, geez, you're so articulate, you know? And, you know, that's like, that's a, that's a compliment, right? And I'm, and I'm a poet and I'm like, oh, thank you. I, I practice, you know? <laughs> but, but there's this idea um, in, inside of, um, a microaggression that is a, so, a subtle lowered expectation for me not to be articulate. Like, why wouldn't I be articulate? You know, and even if her intent was pure and I can forgive the intent, you know, that, that's understandable. But if she doesn't see the impact and she defends against the impact, then that is a psychologically unsafe friend for me to have anymore. You know, I can't, if she can't understand that even though she meant good by saying that I'm articulate, in my mind, it's still registered as a microaggression because racial trauma is real. It's almost as if she had made a subtle joke about sexual assault and I've been sexually assaulted and I'm supposed to just not like zone out for a minute and replay that moment of trauma. Um, that's what a microaggression does. You know, it makes you, it triggers your trauma and you're um, for a moment intellectually and emotionally hijacked and you're reliving your trauma and your pain. And so you, you come back to and you think once you're safe, you have this, uh, oh, I should have said this. I could have responded or rebutted in this way. And the French call that the wit of the staircase. You know, when you walk away from an argument and you finally, oh, I could have said all this. So after your emotions have calmed down, you're able to think clearly. And then all of us become poets and wordsmiths, right? Um, but imagine constantly living in a state of being triggered by racial trauma and living in a place that just triggers your racial trauma on a daily and then having no power to do it. I mean, I guess I'm lucky <laughs> to have a platform and it does help because it helps me, you know, you want me to talk, I'll come talk. <laughs> you know, I, I love to talk, but it's also healing begins with communication. So even for me, this is a healing process. You know, if I feel like I'm implanting, even if some of the seeds begin to take root, it's great because that is, that is the power that I'm willing to um, use in this. You know, that is the power where I, where I reside. Do I understand the rioting? Yeah, I don't understand looting, but I do when you're needy, when you need something, you know. I, I don't agree with it, um, 
but I don't disagree with it because it's a second priority. Human life to me is priority number one. Stop rioting and looting the souls of black people. That's, that's horrendous. Things can be replaced. I don't want to, I personally don't want to see destruction at all. I, I can't stand, I'm an artist. I'm a creative person. You know, I make, I make something out of nothing in any chance I get. So destruction is waste to me. But if it's destruction that arcs towards justice, then I think that it's collateral damage because I don't think that a society should continue to run in a, in a way that allows black people to be killed unjustly. And they say that when the world gets too cold, black people get pneumonia. I think even Dr. Fauci came out and said, <clears throat> black and brown people and native people will, will die at a higher rate when this, the, with the COVID simply because we're already vulnerable. We don't have systems around us set up to, to say we don't have healthcare access. We don't have, um, we don't have um, all the things that a person would need that would otherwise make them resilient and buoyant when, when chaos hits. Think of a storm shelter. You know, if there are a tornado to come through this town, white people basically have storm shelters. Black people have huts to, to, to give you a bit of a visual of what it means to be vulnerable and marginalized. Now, of course, all black people have different levels of wealth and prosperity, and we're not a monolith. You know, there are black people who aren't even aware of some of what's going on because they're insulated by their, their class and by the wealth that they have accrued as an individual, right? But on the macro, we are vulnerable. And I don't bring statistics or facts or anything with me anywhere anymore because that doesn't seem to be a value of the land. <laughs> like, it's out there. Facts and figures, if that, were, if, that, if that were our biggest weapon, we would have took back the political offices of this land. But, but this is just true. It's observant. Look around your community. Where are all the black people? It's not that the air can't be... Uh, it's, not, it's not that it's not breathable. It's not that we don't love sunshine. Um, we all want a sense of safety. So that's what we were doing when we're talking about racism, when we're talking about dismantling racism, when we're seeking justice. It really is like what Martin Luther King said, you know, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If a black trans kid, whatever, whatever a black trans kid suffers, if, that, if systems aren't created around this kid to protect this vulnerable youth, right, or person, eventually it will happen to the next marginalized group and then the next one and then the next one and the next one. If we do not use our power and privileges at our intersections, um, we are complicit. We, are, we become complicit in the crimes that send us to the graves unjustly. So we have to use our power and privilege where we intersect. Right now we are intersecting. We are at the intersection of where we, we all believe that this is something worthy of talking about and addressing with either our boards, our congregations, and our communities, families, and friends. We are in a state of emergency here. And so together, like when people say, we all need to get together, we're already together. Right, we're already together. So what's the next step? Now that we're talking about it, I want to write laws about it. I want to. I want to be creative and confront. I want to be creative, courageous, and confront my community, my chiefs of police. I'm. I'm setting it up to go. I want to go and talk to these police departments, just the way I'm talking to you guys. To me, it's worth it. It's a. It's a. It's all. It's an olive branch. It's a sign of diplomacy. But I think it's where we begin healing. Clearing up this confusion that God did not author. So 
I think it's our responsibility. I don't think that we, even after COVID lifts, even after um, we go back to work and school, that we have the luxury to return to this utopian normal, right? There's, that, that, is, that is not, uh, the black, black people, we do not have a normal that we desire to go back to, you know, as far as systemic change is concerned and systems go. So we are pushing, <clears throat> we are collectively pushing to keep this narrative going, to really see tangible change. And what do I hope that will come out of this task force? I have, I have a, a laundry list of ideas, creative ideas. I'm thinking deeply, like from one I was saying, you know, what if when we call 911, they pick up? And right at that system point, this is a system we're talking about, the dispatcher says, uh, emergency or mental health. That simple change could have saved Antonio Zambrano's life in Pasco. Mentally ill Mexican man throwing rocks at cars. He got shot 16 or 17 times. The cops weren't fired. I think one quit. Um, we protested. I later put a community hope wall mural up. It was great to exercise and, and speak and let the kids from the Jewish speak. But a system change of that, that small could, could save, who knows, hundreds of thousands of lives across the United States. That's just today. And when that call goes to mental health, they dispatch it to a fire department or crisis response. They show up. They make the determination if the police need to be there. Um, they can show up. A crisis response in the uh, fire department can show up with an orderly and sedate somebody. They, there's compassionate ways. Um, whatever it takes to preserve human life. I don't care about the character of Antonio Zambrano or George Floyd. I don't care if they slapped their moms the day before that happened. I don't care if the cops did anything the day before. It's not about the character of these people. It's about the system that led to this moment. It's not justice. It can't be considered justice. And if there's time and resources to change these systems, let's do that. People are afraid of the idea of defund the police because in their minds go, oh my gosh, everything is already so chaotic. When you get rid of the cops, who do we call? <laughs> Activists, wordsmiths, poets, we use language to bring the conversation to the table. I, I don't, we could use a lot of this money and fix these systems. We could send social workers out in, in certain situations. A friend brought this up yesterday. Around policing, it, it should be more specialized. Like if you go to a doctor and you have something going on with your lungs, you're not going to go to an oncologist, well, unless it might be lung cancer, right? But you would go see a pulmonologist for your lungs or a, heart, a cardiologist for your heart and not vice versa, unless there was some crossing you know, illness like COPD or CHF, right? So if a cop just is called anytime there's a situation, we're putting too much pressure on a person who has a gun and only has a high school diploma to make these grand social, political, cultural ideas around safety and justice. I think it's too much pressure on a police officer to have to hold all that weight and power. And then <clears throat> they have the power to take life freely. If justice doesn't apply to the hands and to the shield that's using them and working for them and, and making a living off of them, then how is justice being served to anybody? How is anybody being protected or served? So it's, there's a lot of tricky um, and necessary ideas to unpack behind policing and what racial justice looks like. Um, and I could, I could go on and on and on, and I imagine that we can uh, on the uh, 
sofas over here or the couches over here. But why I want to end on one little message of hope. Um, and it's this. <clears throat> the thing about hope, uh, my sister says, uh, hang on, pain ends. Right. And with all the pain, the depression, the anger, the fury, all this energy, because that's all it is. It's energy. Um, it's safe for it to come out. And for black people who might be watching this, you know, service, you're, you're valid in all that you fear, all that you feel, all that you understand and don't understand. Um, you are not alone in it. Even if it feels like you're alone every single day, you don't have to suffer in silence. And there, there's hope because things do get better when you hold on. You know, one of the little superhero creeds I wrote for my juvie kids is, uh, is this, you know, none of us have reached our final forms. We're all growing. None of us have reached our final forms yet. And the obstacle is the path. So we have an obstacle here on a grand scale. This, this obstacle is the path forward. And every time you overcome an obstacle, you gain a new superpower or ability, kind of like a video game. So it's worth it to hang on, to overcome this obstacle, because we're all overcoming it together. Historically, we are doing this together, whether we understand each other, confused, hate, mad, whatever, it's still happening. And every time you gain a new power and a new ability, you gain more power and ability to hang on to who you truly are, to who you truly are yourself. And that, that is what we fear, is losing ourselves. We don't want to lose our life, of course, but we don't want to lose our character and our, our spirits and what we know to be good, loving, and true in this world. The enduring qualities of peace, justice, equity. These are things worth fighting for, even in small conversations, even blocking, even the way, wherever you have to get to these qualities and they become real and they manifest themselves in our lives. This is the path to a healthy society. This would be the idea of a more advanced civilization. Forget Elon Musk's and his hyperloops and space missions. That's great. I'll go one day. But an advanced civilization would start with kindness and manners. But true kindness and manners. They, they show up as justice. They show up as love. They show up as suffering with your neighbor. Understanding the issues of your community. Who's not at the table? Can love bring them there? Not without truth. All right. Welcome back, Eastlake. Thanks for uh, hanging with us for the Q&A. Uh, I'm Anna, and Jordan graciously uh, agreed to stay for a few extra minutes. We could kind Hello. of unpack some of the things that we've been discussing. I want to first uh, make mention of the fact that we... Uh, feel really privileged that Jordan, today was a sneak peek, but Jordan has graciously agreed to come back for a full workshop with us. Yeah. And so if you were listening and thinking like, oh man, I'm all in, but I still have questions, right? Mm -hmm. we, that's on the agenda. So uh, be looking for more information about a full workshop and yeah. we appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so then I was kind of hoping, so um, send your questions in. I, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to see them here and kind of collate as we go. But I thought... Um, I first just wanted to start by acknowledging that um, how grateful we are for you to be here because I do understand that this 
this is a heavy lift, right? Like, right. like that this work comes at a spiritual and emotional cost and is the day a rest, right? right. It's Sunday. It is Sunday and you have chosen to be here. And yeah. um, I just want to express our gratitude for that and just acknowledge acknowledge the burden it is that this work is even as you said it's also like hopeful it can be healing but yeah. it's hard right yeah i mean it, and it it can definitely be hard you know because you know talking about it for years and it's almost like you're living in a haunted house but you're the only one that can see the ghost you know and, and everybody's always you know walking around just fine and you're always peeking around corners and you hear the bumps in the night and so it messes with your mind because you, we all need to know what's real and what's not, especially when it comes to the things that are causing us such real pain and suffering inside. So that people will welcome the conversation. It makes it actually really easy. Um, you know, I was just in Seattle yesterday coming here to do this talk. It's, it's become, the lifting has become lighter because the community is gathering around this, this, this wound, you know, so... Everybody can see the ghost now. Now we're figuring, we're trying to figure out how to trap it. You know, it's like, okay, whew, I'm not crazy. The house is haunted, right? So, yeah. um, so there's that relief in it. There's, there's, there's relief in the fact that I know just with awareness, a lot of black people who, who we've been fighting for this for years, some of us have pockets and groups of people that we do it with. Some of us work alone. And so um, there's relief. There's uh, relief in that. Now we want to take that momentum not live in that celebration or rest on our laurels and, and push these conversations to tangible outcomes, to real system changes, you know, so. Awesome. Okay, so um, as comments are coming in, I love school, right? That's my, that's my day job. So, uh, and I also think it's important um, at this point for people who look like me to sit under the authority that of people, of people of color. And so can we do school for a minute? Can I tell you what I think I, yeah. can I read you my class notes? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and so then like, let me know if I missed something along the way and then we can kind of uh, unpack. But um, I heard for sure, I heard a lot of things, but three things I heard for sure in this order. Uh, number one, I am complicit, right? Mm -hmm. Full stop. Right. And I, I just, I'm going to go ahead and say that out loud. Right. right. And um, I know Malcolm X said white people have to educate themselves. And so I heard that a long time ago and I've tried to make that my business. And so I know when I'm talking to other white people, I, sh I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but I'm gonna, right? So I have this bingo right. card in my head of like the things people say to pivot away from responsibility, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, um, I didn't own slaves. I have a black friend. Right, there, right. There's, there's bad people on both sides. You qualify whatever. yourself outside of the, the narrative of being a racist. Right, right. Yeah. And so then you can kind of, it's like, because it, it hurts and it's ugly, so you mm. want to pivot away. Um, right. Uh, my favorite is, I'm so thankful. I get this one a lot. I'm so thankful I wasn't raised in a racist household. And you're like, right, yeah. oh, how nice for you, right? Yeah. So, uh, and then by then I'm always like, bingo, four in a row, right? right so right. Um, so I know that, that, that that's a thing that we do sometimes to like pivot away from kind of what's hard or ugly. And so I just want to full stop say, I heard, I heard it. Um, I'm complicit and this is my responsibility. Right. So, and then there's that, you know, complicity that you have just as being, you know, white. But then when we think of something like implicit bias, um, we all have implicit bias. You know, if we pulled up to a fight and there's a white person, and black person fighting, I'm automatically going to wonder, well, why are they fighting? But then is a black person okay? Are they being targeted? Because I know what that feels like. That's implicit bias. I'm already morally jumping on the side of the black person. And as a white person, you will go, oh, well, maybe the white person did this, you know, because we're projecting ourselves. We're projecting our own life and experiences into these people based on skin color. Implicit bias isn't wrong until it becomes complicit crime. 
where implicit bias is deadly amongst white people is when we're not fighting for justice for George Floyd equally. Like, and you know, that's where implicit bias becomes complicit crime. When somebody says, well, George Floyd, he was this, or he was that. That's when you're a part of the crime. That's when you're complicit in injustice, you know. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, point number two. I think I heard that I need to do this work face-to-face, -face, right? I'm going to have to get off Facebook. I'm going to have to go outside Yeah. at some point. I 100% recommend, you know, I, I, I've, I'm very short with people on this topic online just because Facebook has become, social media has become so toxic as an intermediary for handling conversations that require empathy. Uh, having in-person conversations on the most difficult things is so effective, even if, even if it doesn't go well, because at least you know you tried that last line of defense. You know, you tried looking them in the eye. They'd seen your emotions and your pain and suffering up close, and if they still are not there with you, then it is best for your own mental health and safety just to, you know, continue on your own and let them educate themselves, you know, and let them go out there and continue to lose friends. Because uh, these days, for me, I don't, I don't have the luxury to allow people to dig into me with what I know is not to be true. And, and so I, 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 as painful as it is, and hopefully one day on the mountaintop, we can all shake hands and forgive, because I have had a lot of intimate losses over this, but I'm gonna go with justice. And I, the, it's plain and obvious as to what needs to be done and what side I'm on, you know? So that's, yeah, it's important. It is important. Okay, here's what I think I heard. Point number three, uh, beyond educating myself and choosing kindness, and beyond trying to help educate my neighbor and help them choose kindness, I really do have a responsibility to work for justice in systemic ways. Mm -hmm. and, Absolutely. Um, and I think the, that's a little trickier, right? Like that's yeah. a little overwhelming. And so, and I know you already, you know, gave us a ton of really great ideas in the talk, but I wondered if we couldn't just spend a few more minutes unpacking um, what, when we say, hey, engage systemic, systemic issues, like wh what can that look like for an everyday person, right? And like, how, you know, how can we untie systemic from federal? Those aren't synonymous, right? Like right. there's things locally that I can do. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things we were talking about here uh, systemically, so let's just say, let's take um, something easy to approach, like a program, an art program. <clears throat> when, when I created Urban Poets Society, uh, we did it at the Juvenile Justice Center, and a few of the first places we set up was at Barnes & Noble and Academy of Children's Theater. And we had great turnouts, but we had to choose the times wisely because we had to go by the bus route because most of the kids I work with don't have cars or parents with cars, and they don't have access to get to this free open mic to have community. It's a positive hangout for kids. It, it, it flourished for a while, but without proper resources, um, it's hard to sustain something like this, right? And it was to attract black kids and kids of color in the community, but we found it to be overwhelmingly white based on resources. It wasn't that white people weren't welcome, it's they're, they're the only ones who had the resources to really continue to show up to all these things. So if we take something as pro-social as a program for oppressed kids, I know there's tons of money in this town to, to create a system that would otherwise have kids want to hang out and maybe get involved in um, self-harm or community harm. They would um, get constructive and come to a painting class or acting class or, you know, they have boys and girls clubs and things like that. But um, the, having acting classes way out here in Richland, um, kids on the east side, they don't have that, you know. 
and there might be the next, you know, uh, Selma Hayek or Denzel Washington, but because of resources and access, um, we can't reach them. So on a local level, you can change it. You can look at a system and go, how can we fix that? Um, in a school setting, if you have the black kids and the brown kids constantly getting in trouble and you just go, well, that's how black and brown kids are. Well, that's not true. If you put a person in a situation where they're constantly being bullied or racially bullied or targeted or <clears throat> policed with their pants being pulled up, with their hair being a certain way, with constantly being told and invalidated all the ways in which you are not allowed to exist as who you are, and you go, well, geez, their grades suck and they hardly come to school. Geez, black and brown kids are just bad kids. You know, you're, you're, then you're definitely complicit in that kid's self-harm and potential suicide. Because I have gotten calls like that where the racial bullying has led to kids wanting to kill themselves. And we don't look at that, you know. Yeah. 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 Uh. Okay, that's that's really helpful, right? This idea of that systemic can be systemic can be PTA, systemic can be mm-hmm. after school art programs, systemic. Can, there's there's lots of so like that's a big word, but that really helps me understand that like there's a, a place is. for me in it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you have a system in place right now for how you get up, um, go to the bathroom, get in the car, make bread, all these different. We have systems. If you if you're sick, you have a system set up for yourself, Anna, to get in the car and go to the hospital give them your copay, they'll diagnose you. That's a system. When you ever you see a kid in a uh, marginalized youth, a black kid, uh, LGBT youth or anything in some kind of peril, some kind of situation, a system has led to that moment. And, there, and we can change those. We can change laws that shape our behaviors. We can change systems that shape the behaviors in which we move. We're, we, we see how fast it can happen when a pandemic hits. Look how massively we changed the system. Mm-hmm. Social distancing, masks, not going to this store, that store. I mean, it is not this big, big push, but it does take communication, agreement. We have to agree that racism is a problem, that racism is its own uh, national crisis and pandemic of its own, and we need to change systems around that, just the way we have done so easily with pandemic. That's a good, that's a good analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. So... And I know we were chatting before and I was saying, I think for me, as I've been processing things lately, I'm realizing that probably a lot in my life, probably a lot of my efforts have focused on, you know, trying to educate myself and, and choose, I don't know, like kindness or whatever for myself or trying to help my neighbor, but it's, it's not enough. Right? I was telling right. you before, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been working really hard to remodel a house that's got termites. Like mm, yeah. this isn't going to work. Right. right. Um, and so, so I totally hear you that we have to focus on systems, but I'm going to check the chat, but backing yeah. up. Um, just a little bit, even though we know that's where we're headed. Can we also just do like a really quick uh, cheat sheet of like do's and don'ts? So like I'm all in, like I'm your yeah. best white ally. I'm coming. I put my sneakers <laughs> on and I showed up. Right. Yeah. So so what are a couple like do's and do's don'ts? And don'ts <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the I was going to post something about this, too. One of the one of the don'ts I would personally ask people, especially my white allies, is to stop sending me links, photos of all the racist things that are happening in the world because they don't realize that they're, they're tr- triggering my trauma. And when I choose to speak about it, it's because I'm in a safe place and I'm, I'm accessing it. I'm wanting to engage that conversation. But it's kind of like if you have a friend who uh, has suffered sexual assault, you wouldn't want to send them, you wouldn't send them stories and news articles and all this um, jargon or anything around sexual assault because it's like that's sensitive like let them mm-hmm. let them talk about it when they're ready 
So I think that that would be uh, definitely a don't. Um, also, don't make your black friends, don't, don't accidentally tokenize them. Don't go to them for all the answers and expect them to have everything because a lot of black people are just as traumatized and don't necessarily have the words to describe or articulate what's going on with them. Even though they are black, they don't have all the answers themselves or we would have heard about them decades ago. They would have been solving problems left and right. So do some of the labor, take that emotional, psychological labor off of your black friends in your community um, and just be there to listen. If they prompt it, they bring it up, listen, listen to them. And if you feel any sense right now, especially with things so red hot, to challenge them and to make it like this intellectual debate, um, just imagine that there's a, a body on the ground that's begging to breathe, a black body on the ground. And so we don't have time to debate we don't have time to um, intellectualize something that is obvious to us, uh, criminal, you know. So taking the emotional and psychological labor off of your friends is a big, a big one. Um, and a, a big do, a do is to, to, yeah, to make yourself available to listen, to, to start attacking the conversations with people who you know um, are racist, you know, start doing that emotional, psychological work that we're doing, you know, and make your dinner tables uncomfortable. You know, you're going to have to challenge your aunts, uncles, and cousins because these are the people that are in these communities, right? You don't have to go rushing at them today like, oh, I want to talk about this. You could open it up and say, would you be open to talking about this, um, this comment you made? Because it makes me feel like this or that. Mm -hmm. My mom is white. And when I was growing up, a few times, she said, you better be quiet back there. I'm going to jab slap you. Excuse my language, because I, I don't like that term at all. And I didn't understand what it meant when I was a kid. And then when I got older, and I had made a lot of just that Japanese friends and understood race a lot better, and she had said it one time again, and I confronted her on it. And I said, That's, Mom, that is totally unacceptable. You know, I have Japanese friends. That is derogatory, demeaning, it dehumanizes. It's not okay. She never said it again. She stopped, of course. I can have that kind of confrontation with my mom. I think people can do it with their cousins, their brothers, their grandmas, um, even in a respectful way. And it's important because a racial slur is not just something that hurts feelings. You, saying nigger or jap or any of these derogatory terms towards a person doesn't just go, oh, geez, I can't handle that. On a larger scale, racial slurs and derogatory remarks are a way to dehumanize a person. And when you can dehumanize them, it makes them easier to kill and not give them justice. Again, the bottom line. If you, we're not going to give a man the death penalty if he kicks a garbage can. Right? Because a garbage can is just a garbage can. There's no justice that needs to happen there. But you can, you, you, that's, that, that garbage can is not a human. It's totally dehumanized. That is what racial slurs and derogatory remarks over a long campaign in history do. It turns a human being into an inanimate object worthy of being killed and not receiving justice. This is what's so problematic with the language. You know? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to check the chat, but here's, here's what... Um Here's one, and it's bigger, and we got a workshop, so we can do we can pack this more later too. But um, what kind of role would you like to see the church play specifically? And that could be that could be Capital C Church, that could be East Lake. Like, how, uh, what's the role of the church in in this thing that we're trying to move towards? 
and racial justice yeah. and policing. Um, when I think of the church as a whole, you know, I honestly do think of what Jesus would do. And I think that, I do think that a lot of churches do a really good job, you know, at, at creating sort resources and programs. And what I think today's church could be doing with the resources that they have, the following the congregation, <clears throat> is really stepping in and, and, and standing and suffering with the marginalized and the most oppressed. To me, nothing else makes sense. Nothing else makes sense. Every dime that any church has ever made on American soil in the name of Jesus um, is Jesus's money. <laughs> and I think that uh, if Jesus were here, he would want those resources to be used for oppressed people, for marginalized people, for the suffering, uh, for the have-nots. Um, and unapologetically, you know, not to even get into the debates of, well, we can do this, we can do that. No, you know what's right and wrong. You know, we're, we, we know this. We know what's right and wrong. And we know that we have um, the time and resources to correct these things. I think the church, I used to have a contention. <clears throat> I used to have this really big, and I still have this contention. I'll speak freely about this. When I go to the Union Gospel Mission and I hang out with those, those guys over there and we eat pork and beans and old cake, you know, from the food banks or what have you. Um, and they just got this new one. And it's actually a really nice artsy kind of, I don't know if you've been to the new Union Gospel Mission in East Pasco. It's kind of cool looking inside. It's still a homeless shelter. I drive by um, a lot of different mega churches. And I look at all these mega churches and all the money and food that they have inside of them and, and how I still see the Union Gospel Mission packed. Um, I think that's a system problem that's got the intersections of capitalism and um, disparity all attached to it. You know, our church versus this society. Um, I don't think that's what churches are designed to do. It's not just to go on Sundays to get the warm fuzzy and be motivated, you know, because that gets you started. But how do we be disciplined to get us there? And I think that comes with real self-examination, real value and moral examination and ask yourself, who do you want to be going forward? You know, who, who, who do we want to be going forward? I know when, when the Pasco, city of Pasco voted against having that transitional homeless shelter over there, I thought, well, geez, me and my brothers, my mom moved here um, <clears throat> running from her pimp from Oxnard, California, from the abuse of a pimp. We were homeless. Pasco would have turned me away today with that vote. I think of compassion and being, truly being in suffering with one another. The folks in Pasco, their whole contention was they didn't want the value of their homes dropping by 7% because a, because a homeless shelter would be there. A sanctuary city. How hypocritical. So, <clears throat> so systems have to change if we are to be who we believe we are, a, a land of... Um, you know, that believes in justice and liberty and compassion for our neighbors and our friends. If it's just for Facebook likes, if it's just for the material, superficial uh, facade of it all, then who wants that? Really, in the end, I think, I honestly, I think that this quarantine is not a mistake. It's sad. It's horrible. All the, the death that's happening around it. But I think for the first time, we're not distracted with school. <clears throat> we're not distracted with work and nine to fives and that, that, that grind that we're all in, and now we can see crystal clear, with a crystal clear consciousness, ourselves, 
and somebody like George Floyd being killed on camera, how, how wrong all, the, all of this really is. How it is time in history to correct things. It's how can we feel good about going forward with, with so much injustice on, our, on all of our hands? On all of our hands, so. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, I have... I think at some point they'll like cut us off, right? Well, we'll just I let's go. So. Let's yeah, just go until going. they um, let's solve this thing. <laughs> yeah, right by lunchtime. Yes. Because so, oh yeah, we have not just kidding. Um, so I wa- I wanted to say back two things. I think I just heard you just to see if I got it. And then um, there's a good question here, which might end up being our last one for today, keeping in mind that we have a workshop coming up. Yeah. So when we think about the church, I th- I think I heard you saying say that really there's we can kind of think about these things in two parallel or synergistic or overlapping um, tracks that the church, we need to think about like act the actions of the church. Like what can this church do to be a better steward of its resources to be da, 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 da. And so, so we need to think and we need to act. But then also I hear you saying that um, churches really have a responsibility. Um, if you, if, well, Christian churches, if they say, Hey, we're trying to figure out how to be like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, then he said, uh, that guy's your neighbor. Right. Mm -hmm. So if that guy's your name, so we have not just action, but also, yeah, this idea of like, what's our posture towards our Mm -hmm. neighbor. And so it sounds like, and that's really helpful to me as I'm just sort of listening to you. All right. Well, not only should I go to the union gospel mission, but it's going to really matter that I look people in the eye, right? right? That I'm not that, that my neighbor isn't um, an act of charity. It's my neighbor, right? right? And that mm-hmm. I'm going to have to really get better at figuring out how to be in those spaces in a way that is humanizing, that's mm-hmm. respectful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, when I go into a community, I try to get in, into community with the most marginalized voice in that community. And usually for me, what I find that to be is the incarcerated black, brown, or native youth. You know, that's the most marginalized voice in the community. When you think about it, what a margin is, something that gets pushed to the side. It's just not seen in the center, right? And then to have that voice in the side, not in the center, but in a cage. And then your communication is controlled to the outside world. Um, that voice, inside of that voice, has there's, so, there's solution, and it, one of my most recent students, I can't give a lot of details of it, but um, he was just involved in a drive-by shooting on the highway. <clears throat> We're painting on Monday. I'm not, there's no fear of these kids because when you meet, he's a kid. Like you see a kid that, that did the unthinkable, right? And now he's sober and aware and contrite and ashamed and he's only 17 and something from the time he was born to the time I met him, could have been changed. It, there's something that could have been done. He wants to be saved by a system. He didn't want to get into the system of, of uh, street crime or street recreation that usually leads to crime. There's a reason why kids join gangs. And there's three of them. Three reasons why kids join gangs is for three things they should be getting at home. And that's acceptance, protection, and love. A lot of our communities don't have fathers in them. Not only do we not have fathers, we don't have grandfathers. That's lineage, resources, and protection and guidance and example that's completely missing from, from these kids' lives. Nine out of ten of the kids I work with are black and brown um, and fatherless. There are systems that can help. We could change systems around that and protect that kid and protect the community and the whole fell swoop. I know that everybody wants to solve this thing, right? We want injustice now and all this, but we're going to have to be patient. We're actually going to have to be joyful. 
We're going to have to be audacious and tenacious in this fight for justice. We're going to have to get creative. We're going to have to be, all become woke and see, see this invisible world. Like right now, for me, it feels like I'm Neo in the Matrix. I see all the zeros and ones everywhere, and I go, oh, wow, you know, that's how it feels. So when people are calling and asking on me for help, I'm understanding that there's a learning curve, you know, and that we have to be compassionate and patient because once people do start getting all on the same page, that's where my hope is because I've seen what I've been able to do with these new eyes. Once we all get everybody singing in the same choir together, well, we'll make real music, you know, out of, out of the madness. You know? That's awesome. Okay, last question um, coming from one of our folks. So, and we're, we're doing a workshop later, and so we'll build this resource list out build out a more robust resource list, but like today, what's your, what are your favorite resources for this work? Where do you want to send people? Yeah. So <clears throat> there are, and I'll send it to Brent. Have, did I send you the code of ethics for white allies? Oh, it's, it's a great six page code of ethics for white allies written by Tim Wise and a few other trusted, powerful white allies. I'll send that to you for free. It's just a PDF. Um, but also a book by Ijoma Oluo. Um, so you want to talk about race and then another one called um, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi? Mm-hmm. Kind- yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, Stamped is another yep. good one. And oh, and just for, just for aesthetic consumption, but also woke and awareness consumption is uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. It's one of my favorite all-time books. It's a memoir, but if you listen to it on Audible, it's like a three-hour spoken word poem. But it's, it's just fascinating, that man's gift with words. So, Awesome. Yeah. Huh? What about your work? Oh, my work. Where can oh. we, fi- where can we find um, you? So, okay, this is really cool. So I, have, I wrote a memoir in this pandemic uh, back in April. So that's being edited right now. Um, you can find, like, poetjordan.com. You can find my, my little poetry books that I have out there. I brought three to give away for you guys here. But... Um, I have a memoir coming out sometime this year. It's kind of exciting what's happening behind the scenes with it. So kind of waiting to see. But um, it's a life story about my life as a poet. And yeah, it has everything in it. Actually, when I go back and look at it, I go, oh, my gosh, I said that. I told that. <laughs> it's, it's actually really, it's really good. I'm proud of this piece of work coming out. But, and then I'm writing articles. Uh, you'll see an article in the Seattle Times here in a week or two that I'm working on <clears throat> around the police task force and racial justice work. Um, and then look out for the art dojos that we're creating. We're creating little art studios for kids in the community. And, oh, and then we're filming. There's so many projects. I have so many cool little projects happening. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there's going to be some exciting things happening. And people will start just hearing about it everywhere anyway. So it's I'm kind of shy about promoting some things now because <laughs> the attention is a lot, you know, but, but if I can do something good with it, then I am, you know. Awesome. Yeah. Jordan, thank you. Yeah, We thank really you. appreciate you being here and uh, we look forward to catching up again in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me and it's, it's really cool to be in a, a theater space again because I, li- I, li- I miss the stage. I do miss that. That's fun. We got one. I know. I, I see that. We'll it's, get you back. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, East Lake. Thank you, East Lake.